Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune podcast. So we have a returning guest on the podcast this week, Steve Penny, author of the Silver Chartist Report. Uh, before we get into the discussion today, the Silver Chartist Report uh, is, is a free weekly newsletter that Steve sends out, uh, which contains, honestly, some of the highest quality research that, that I've seen from a from a free newsletter, um, it has a paid option as well with with additional information, additional insight into various stocks and and, and precious metals. But that's basically what he covers on this in this newsletter is an analysis um, of of mining stocks, specifically a lot of precious metals mining stocks, uh, uranium mining stocks, as well as precious metals themselves, silver and gold, especially. Um, I've seen a lot of value in it. And I can say personally that just in the last month plus that that I have you know, been signed up and, and since my last discussion with Steve, I can say that my portfolio has done you know pretty well. And, and, and so, you know, I just want to share that with all of you before we get started here. There's a link down below in the description if you want to sign up for it. Uh, and and you know, one of the things that maybe we can start off talking about here, Steve. Is, is this idea that there's a lot of expensive things in today's marketplace, whether you're looking at tech or bonds or, or corporate bonds. I mean, it really across the board, there's a lot of expensive assets out there. Um, and, and a lot of what you zero in on is, is what's not expensive right now, but what might be expensive in the, you know, the cycle that we're kind of, kind of coming into right now. But before we get into that, Steve, I just want to welcome you back. How are you doing today? Oh, good, Matthew. Thank you so much for inviting me back on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you 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 come on out for this and uh, and and you know, like I said, before we kind of get into kind of talk about uh, price action and then a lot of the other topics that I want to talk about today, um, real quick, maybe you can kind of share with listeners what I kind of mentioned there as well. This idea that a lot of when it comes to commodities, when it comes to mining stocks right now, we're looking at something that historically is cheap and and, and relatively when you're looking compared to the Dow, the S&P compared to bonds and interest rates and whatnot. So in asset classes that are relatively cheap, can, can you kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think you really gave a good summary there. It's almost easier to say what's not in a bubble these days. Um, you know, the term everything bubble has been used a lot. And, you know, I agree with that. Uh, so you look to look look for what's not in a bubble and it doesn't take long to zero in on commodities. And then when you take a look at commodities and say, well, what's the most undervalued commodities? You know, two conclusions I come up with are silver and uranium. And you could also say gold as well. And, uh, you know, I think we're starting to see kind of a, uh, the begin- early stages of generalist investors kind of cycling out of momentum stocks into more value-oriented plays. And I think silver, gold, and uh, commodities are going to benefit from that. So we're recording this on uh, May 31st, last day of May, Memorial Day here. And, and you're kind of mentioning before we went on the air here, uh, a lot of really key events that happened in the month of May in the markets, you know, to the to the untrained eye, if if I'm just just the average investor, um, average precious metals investor, and I'm watching the price of silver, uh, price of gold from from week to week, month to month, um, on the surface, May might have looked like a bit of a lackluster month, kind of boring. You know, there were times where it looked like silver was about to break through, but but you know, here we are at the end of the month with with silver, you know, right around uh, twenty eight dollars an ounce. Um, gold, uh, last my check, sitting right around um, just north of $1,900 an ounce. But you're talking to me about that, that there's actually kind of some key 
events that happened in this month of May. Uh, so what are you talking about there? Yeah. So um, from a technical perspective, yeah, some really key developments happened in the month of May. And it, it may have felt quiet, but I'm just looking at a monthly chart for silver here. And silver was actually up 8.3% on the month of May, which, you know, I'll take that any any day. But you know, what's, what's really interesting is uh, a lot of the components of the precious metal sector have been in this very well-defined downtrend channel that goes back to the August highs of 2020. Um, and I've been waiting for a few months now for breakouts above the upper boundary of that downtrend channel. And what's interesting is in the month, uh, actually last month um, in April, GDX was the first to break out, right? So that's the senior gold miners. That That's telling because that's where the institutions and kind of the big money generalist investors go first. And then what t t tends to follow is the more speculative components of the sector break out afterwards. And sure enough, we saw that in the month of May, GDXJ broke out after GDXJ and SILJ, the junior silver mining ETF, actually just poked its head above the 13-year uh, uh, downtrend line. So that's another breakout. Um, so I, we're starting to see some really nice breakouts here. Now, of course, we are getting just a little bit stretched technically on the daily chart. So it, it would be healthy and not uh, not surprising to see a little bit of backing and filling here. But I do think that the trend has reversed and I think we're going to see higher highs and higher lows going forward. That's my expectation. So as we head you know, into June here, as we head into the, the summer months, a lot of times the sentiment or, or the conventional wisdom around the stock market, but also a lot of times the precious metals is this idea of sell in May and go away. Uh, I've never been a huge fan of that conventional wisdom because there's always really good counterexamples. Mm -hmm. and, and I think of, you know, certainly, first of all, I think you and I both can agree that we'd never advocate for somebody to to just sell their their precious metals portfolio in May and you know buy again in, in, in August or something like that. Um, but this idea that we're just going to, you know, take a break for the next couple of months. I've never really been a big fan of that conventional wisdom. And you know, I look back to like 2019, 2019 was a really good year, especially for gold during the summer months. And in fact, we saw some really key breakouts that had you just been sitting on the sidelines or had you been, you know, less active at least, you probably would have missed out on those. Um, so, so what are your thoughts as we head into the summer months, which some, you know, at times can be uh, not so positive for precious metals? Wait, so so you didn't sell all your all your physical metal and then just to buy it back in July? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I agree every, with everything you just said there. The seasonality, um, I mean, I look at it. June is typically, I, I believe it's the weakest month of the year historically for silver. But, um, you know, I don't make any trading or investing decisions around that. But um, I, I could see that happening because, you know, like I said, we're, we're due for a little bit of a pullback here. Typically, what happens when you get a breakout in a sector, you kind of run a little bit more, and then you come back and back test the breakout level. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen in June. You know, maybe we run a little bit higher here, and then we come back and back test some breakout levels, and then before moving higher. But yeah, I, I don't base any investment decisions around the seasonality or anything. Right, and you know, I think in, in another thing that comes to mind for me is that there's a lot of, of other dynamics that go into the marketplace on any given time period. For example, in 2019, especially with gold, you know, a big part of that positive movement in the price of gold, despite what everyone thought would be, you know, a poor couple of months was um, Fed policy at that time, which was moving in a very dovish and unexpectedly dovish 
direction, uh, at least unexpected to a lot of, of, of um, analysts and a lot of people that were watching the markets at that point in time. And I think, you know, 2021 is kind of unique in that we have, especially in the silver space, maybe some of the most um, um, attention and, 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 and kind of momentum on our side, maybe not technically speaking always, but, but in terms of, of interest in the space, this has been, you know, one of the most interesting years in, in recent memory, at least, you know, going back to, to 2011. And, uh, and I think we have to kind of take that into account. And, and I kind of wanted your thoughts on that, you know, uh, kind of start off talking about this idea of people looking for something that's cheap, looking for something that's not in a bubble, and in relation to, to to silver specifically, you know, we can put gold and 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 uranium aside for the moment. But in in relation to silver, you know, where where do you see us on that timeline? You know, things like Wall Street silver and and certainly on social media, silver's garnered a ton of attention. But but you know, have retail investors and institutional investors truly arrived? I, I think it's we're in the early stages, but yes, I think they are starting to um, more generalist investors are waking up to the potential here in silver and just how undervalued it is. And you talked about the Wall Street silver movement. Um, you know that was a spin out from um, the. Uh, uh, sorry, it's been a long day. The Wall Street, um, Wall, Wall Street bets. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so you know, a, a subsector of that Wall Street bets movement. Like they're they're looking for the next thing. What what's the next undervalued thing that we can kind of run up? And th- they were correctly zeroed in on silver. And I think you know that's just kind of like a, an early sign of what other investors are going to see as well. You know, it, it doesn't take many people to pile in or to take notice of the silver market to really have a meaningful impact on the price because it's such a small market. You know, it's less than a billion ounces mined every year globally. So call it thirty dollars silver at a billion dollars or a billion ounces. It's only $30 billion a year globally. So this is a really small market and it won't take much money to move the price um, significantly higher. And I expect that. Yeah, I mean, you know, one one thing that I like to keep in mind is, you know, you look around now, now precious metals investors, especially physical precious metals investors are notoriously tight-lipped about their investment because they realize that they have a, uh, potentially thousands, hundreds, tens of hundreds, whatever, thousands of dollars in their physical possession and in, in and so oftentimes our investors are tight-lipped about it. But but you think of, maybe you can answer this question now. We, we all might talk to our friends, family about precious metals, but how many people do you know personally that you have seen um, on social media or in person or, or something along those lines, um, not somebody in this community, but just somebody that you know personally that have said that they invested in precious metals and compare that to how many people you've seen say the same about you know cryptocurrency yeah. Um, so for years, you know, we, you and I have both been following these markets for a long time, the silver and gold market. And I remember, you know, in the mid, you know, like 2015-ish, you know, I was still talking about silver to all my friends and family, but no one wanted to hear about it, like nobody. <laughs> and uh, now we're, I'm starting to see um, from my end, and this is just anecdotal evidence, but I'm starting to see more interest. People are actually listening when I try and tell them about this. And some people are actually asking me about it. Um, out of nowhere. So, you know, that's just anecdotal evidence that people are waking up. Um, are, are you kind of seeing the same thing? Are, are people more, are more people asking you about it? You know, actually, no, I, I haven't had as much interest personally, you know, p- people asking me about it. You know, I was going to say, you know, in the past year or two, I've seen plenty of people that will randomly bring up crypto. And, and, and sometimes it's not even like a, um, 
Bitcoin that they'll bring up in relation to cryptocurrencies, but it'll be some, some not even like a major altcoin, but just some random altcoin out there that that they've invested and done well with. And, and that kind of serves to tell me that like <laughs> crypto, you know, has maybe, um, I mean, that's a whole other conversation of where that market's at, but, but, but that certainly has, uh, is close to maybe a peak in terms of interest, but in terms of precious metals, um, I, I do see it just generally people more, more interested, more open-minded to it. And I think, you know, I, I, part of me wonders if, if, you know, just a simple look at the chart over the last couple of years goes a long way in that direction, because to the, to the untrained eye, uh, you know, looking at the precious metals chart back in 2019 or 2018 would have looked sort of depressing if you if you compare it back to 2011. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to, to my knowledge, silver is the only commodity on the planet that's trading below where it was in 1980, and not just a little bit below. It's like almost half. You know, silver was 50 bucks back in 1980, just you know, just under there, and here we are, under 30, 40 years later. Um, so it's really quite astounding, which presents opportunity. Yeah, and I think you know, in in, in terms of of um, just kind of the lay person getting interested in something like this, or the generalist investor, uh, I even I even think of just conversations I've had with people regarding the last year, the last year's worth of a fiscal policy. You know, most people are naive uh, or entirely ignorant to to things like monetary policy and QE and all of that. But fiscal policy—that's something we've all seen and and many of us have have experienced. You know, firsthand, secondhand. And I even think of one conversation I had with a, a guy a few weeks ago um, in, in terms of things like stimulus checks or the um, 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 various programs that have helped with, with unemployment or, or housing or with, with like EBT, things along those lines. And, 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 and basically his assessment was like, just something doesn't feel right about this. <laughs> like, like this is, this is, um, I can't put my finger on it. And I, I yeah. find a lot of times that's, that's people where they're at and where they start is they can't put their finger on it, but something doesn't feel right about it. Uh, and, and a lot of times what it takes is just a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of, you know, education on things like precious metals and inflation and, and all of that. Yeah. I agree. 100%. I've, I've seen friends and neighbors uh, kind of making similar statements. Yeah. It just doesn't feel right. Um, you know, of course, uh, people like us who've been studying Austrian economics and following this for a long time, you know, we're like, yeah, it's happening. But, um, you know, a lot of people are, this is brand new to them and uh, they can sense it, but you know, they don't necessarily know where to look. And, you know, the government wants inflation too, because it kind of deflects the blame. People don't understand it. And when you get inflation, it kind of um, people turn on each other as opposed to the people or the institutions who caused this, you know, the central planners who knowingly made more promises that they could not uh, make good on in today's dollars. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, some people are, are, are conditioned to um, look for a very specific uh, a sort of villain that kind of fits maybe their political or their ideological framework. And so, you know, one person might look at uh, inflation and say, you know, it's this, this is a bunch of corporatists um, that are just raising the prices for, for the sake of profit. And, and they're using inflation as an excuse. And then you have another group of people that would say, well, this is what happens when, when, um, 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 you know, maybe maybe make another blame based on, on just purely political spending from the left or something along those lines. Um, without really looking and realizing that this is maybe a a two party problem and a um, certainly a, a central banking problem and a monetary phenomenon and not just shortages or not just um, corporates corporations being being 
greedy, I guess. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I try to not be a Debbie Downer. Um, but you know, at the same time, I'm a realist and I, I really think we're headed for some pretty tough times ahead because, you know, it's like a economics 101. You get more of what you incentivize and less of what you de-incentivize or, or punish. And, you know, we're, we're right now paying people, incentivizing people to not work. And obviously that decreases the productive output of our economy at the same time that currency units are growing exponentially. I mean, the amount of currency units in the system. So we have more currency units chasing fewer and fewer goods and services. So we're going to just continue to see higher prices. I'm very confident of that. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to be blindsided. They're not prepared for what's coming. And, you know, I'm not trying to sound dramatic or sensational, but, you know, for, for those of us who are awake and aware, you know, I, I think now's the time to maybe, um, you know, consider what's coming down the road. So so let's continue on that kind of line of thought about inflation, because that's certainly what is, is sort of at the top of, of your mind and, and my own mind as well. Uh, kind of going into not just the next couple of months, but the next couple of years and, and the damage that inflation does. Uh, not only to to our, our bank accounts, but also uh, like what you were talking about, that inflation is a, a sort of a destabilizing effect on a society. Um, so, so a couple of numbers here. So inflation is on the rise, of course, back in uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had the, um, the, the CPI print 0.8% uh, month over month. Recently, we got the PCE print, which is generally a little bit lower, usually the one that the Fed likes to use, probably because it is lower. Um, for their inflation target, and that was 0.7% month over month. So those come out to um, 9.6 and, and 8.4% annualized um, inflation numbers, uh, respectively. Um, and those weren't one-off numbers either. You know, if you look back to uh, basically the beginning of the year, uh, CPI, PCE, they've both been on the rise. In fact, if you look at the past three months, uh, so that'd be what, April, March, and, and February for those three months, um, those are the highest, you know, three months running in, in over a decade. Um, uh, one of them goes back, I think, to like the 90s. The other one, I think, goes back to some point in the 2000s. But it's been a long time since inflation has been this high. Of course, from the Fed, we're, we're hearing the term transitory, that this is going to go away within a couple months. Um, certainly, you and I have other thoughts. And, and I certainly agree with your assessment that if you have more and more dollars going out to, to purchase this, you know, uh, this, the same amount of goods, and all all the while you have less and less uh, production within an economy. That's that's a pretty good recipe for something like like inflation. Uh, how, how do you see this influencing precious metals? I mean, the obvious the obvious answer is metals are an inflation hedge. So obviously, if we keep getting high CPI prints, PCE prints, metals are going to keep going up. But then, of course, you know the counter argument to that is a lot of times metals will perform more based on what they expect out of the Federal Reserve or, or central banks. Or, or the strength of the dollar versus just just inflation numbers, and in turn might you know go down over the short term with another high CPI print because they might expect you know less easing from the Fed because they're getting closer to their or or well past their their inflation target. Um, so so what are you kind of expecting? You know, let's say over the next couple of months, if we get um, high, continue to get high inflation prints, you know, how does this affect precious metals? Well, the, the simple answer is it's bullish for them. Excuse me. But um, w- one thing I've really been watching closely is real interest rates, as I believe that's the biggest fundamental driver for the precious metals is real interest rates. And a simple way to get that, I mean, there's no like standard way to measure real interest rates, but I just look at the, I think what most people will do is look at the 10-year uh, uh, 
the interest rate on the 10-year and then look at CPI and look at the difference. And if inflation is greater than the yield on the 10-year, um, you've got negative real rates. And we, we're back to negative real rates. For a brief period there back in uh, late February, early March, we actually had positive real rates and uh, that was negative for the metals. That's what caused all that weakness. But um, what, what I'm seeing now is uh, the price of uh, precious metals, silver and gold, are kind of decoupling from the inverse relationship to the nominal yield on the 10-year note. So, you know, typically what would happen is if the interest rate on the 10-year goes up, the metals go down. It's just kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. Well, we've kind of seen that begin to decouple here in the last few weeks. And what that's telling me is that more generalist investors are expecting inflation. Even if the Fed does begin to raise nominal rates, which I, I don't really expect that, but you know the market is, is seems to be thinking that even if they do, they're going to be behind the curve. In other words, inflation is going to stay hotter or above the, the yield on the tenure. And um, you know I, that's nothing but bullish for the metals. I think that's the biggest tailwind that we could possibly have is negative real rates. And I think they're only going to go deeper into negative territory. So here's a question for you because I would I would entirely agree. And and you know, Mark, part of my uh, um, um, something that always clouds the water for me is is this idea of of real rates um, when we don't. been, you know, 3%, three and a half percent. Um, so, but, but the, so the big question for me though, on that topic is, and actually I'll read this question. This is something I was talking about this recently on my podcast and, and, and somebody left a question. Um, and, and I think it's kind of the, the big question we all should be asking is will inflation cause interest rates to rise, uh, you know, across the marketplace, whether we're talking about global, uh, um, global sovereign debt, uh, um, U.S. bonds, corporate debt, um, because it, conventional wisdom would say yes, inflation. If inflation goes up, then bond yields follow. Uh, but but that's that would be in the absence of let's say a central bank um, buying said bonds. Yeah, I, I do think that nominal rates are likely to rise at at some point. I mean, when that happens, I'm not sure. But you know, in the intermediate term, I think the Fed will eventually have to begin raising rates. Uh, but like I said before, the key thing is as long as inflation is above the uh, yield on that tenure, you know, we're gonna, still going to have negative real rates. And uh, if you go back and look at previous bull markets, like in the late 70s leading up to 1980, uh, th that was in an environment of rising nominal rates. Uh, the same thing happened earlier in the 2000s uh, leading up to 2011. Um, so, you know, th there is precedent for gold and silver to rise with nominal uh, rates rising as well. Well, I think you, you kind of said it earlier, you know, a key term there too would be uh, behind the curve, the Fed being behind the curve, that it's one thing for them to, to raise rates, but it's another thing for them to to raise rates behind the curve, uh, far less effective. In fact, you know, you if you look back to the 70s, early 80s, it wasn't until the Fed got ahead of the curve and 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 really crushed the, the market and the economy with really high rates uh, before before they were able to actually get ahead of the curve and, and kind of stop inflation at that point. 
Yeah, that, that's such a good point because it, there's a lot of similarities between the 1970s bull market and now and that environment and what we're seeing right now, but there's also some key differences. So um, some of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar that Paul Vol- Volcker came in in 1980 and broke the back of inflation, right? He wrote, inter- he brought interest rates up to you know, 15 16%, and that broke the back of inflation, uh, brought real rates back into positive territory. Um, but they can't, here, here's a key distinction. They can't do that today. There's too much debt in the system. You know, we're approaching a $30 trillion national debt with unfunded contingent liabilities on top of that, that go into, you know, north of a hundred trillion. Um, so every 1% rise in interest rates adds $300 billion a year to their net interest expenses on a $30 trillion national debt. So at some point, if they were to raise rates, um, too much, you, you, we're coming to a point where all of the federal tax receipts are going to go towards just servicing interest on that debt. Um, you know, that, that's a point we're headed to. And obviously the variable in that equation is uh, what the interest rates are. But regardless, we're headed to that point. And I think that's something every investor needs to consider. You know, what does this look like as this global debt binge unwinds? Well, I mean, I totally agree. We were in a relative, you know, relative to today, we were in a low debt environment in the early 80s. And, and likewise, you know, one of my doubts is that that there would actually be the political will to do something like that. You know, uh, it's always been a big thing for me that that when I look at the Fed, I see, uh, at least for the last 20, uh, 25 years, an organization that has been bent on on essentially kicking the can down the road, doing whatever is politically expedient over the short term uh, and, and sacrificing things like long-term growth, uh, sacrificing long-term currency or, or economic stability since the two go hand in hand. And, and I just don't see the political will being there to to really go after that inflation with with high high interest rates. It would, um, well, I, I just don't think it would be possible in the sense that um, it, it wouldn't just be a matter of, oh, we, we'll have to deal with another recession or, or something like that. I, I don't think the system as a whole um, would survive that. I don't think banks would survive. And I don't, you know, I'd be, I'd be doubtful about, you know, the survival of, yeah, society and, and maybe government as we know it in, in that type of situation. It just wouldn't work with the debt levels that we have, as you pointed out. Yeah, it's, it's just completely untenable. Uh, because let, let's say they, they tried to um, you know get ahead of inflation and raise interest rates and really build a real economy, right? And, and uh, work off all these um, excesses. Well, th- that would have to coincide with co- coming back to a time of living within our means. Well, if we're going to do that, if you're going to live within your means and um, actually spend, you know, at least less than what you take in in federal tax receipts, that would be enormously painful. That would involve telling Social Security recipients, "Hey, you know what? Sorry, we overpromised. We don't have the money." Um, <clears throat> that's not going to happen. Pensioners, you know, federal pensioners, military pensions, those would all have to be cut to, in order to, um, you know, r- return to a sound economy. They're not going to do that. There's no way. And history suggests that 100% of the time they choose to inflate the debt away. And obviously, precious metals are the prime beneficiary of that exact environment going back millennia. Yeah, and I think you know that the the key thing that that I need to understand personally too that that as I've sort of I've learned and, and maybe evolved my my viewpoint on a lot of these things is that when you say inflate that away, that that doesn't necessarily mean hyperinflation. It, it very well could, and, and I would never argue with somebody that says that it, it's going to, but there's oftentimes this, this argument from, you know, maybe more mainstream um, economists and whatnot saying that, you know, something like global reserve currency, you know, we've never seen a hyperinflation of the global reserve currency. It's always relegated to 
um, you know, the Venezuelas, uh, the Germany's, uh, the Zimbabwe's of the world, and and that that's simply not going to happen for the United States because of the current demand for the U.S. dollar, uh, and 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 so I guess what I'm saying here is that like yeah, it might not happen in the sense of hyperinflation, but certainly um, a devaluation of the dollar to half or or a tenth of what it is right now um, would would achieve their goal to some extent and be nearly as destructive. Yeah, there's a term of uh, financial repression, and I think that's what they're trying to do right now. And financial repression is is essentially inflating the debt away. But they, they want inflation to run hot, but they don't want it to be too obvious that you know the the masses understand it. You know, so there, there's not an exact number, but say seven percent inflation. If you had seven percent annual inflation, that cuts the debt in half every ten years. So that's what they're trying to do. But what they can't necessarily predict is confidence. And, um, you know, history suggests that at some point, confidence will be lost in the system. And, you know, I, there's that Voltaire quote, all fiat currencies return to their intrinsic value. That's true if the system is allowed to just continue to run its natural course. But I think they're going to probably introduce some kind of new system uh, before that happens. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree uh, that it's hard to say, you know, as, as we move towards a more and more cashless society, more digitalized economy, uh, that that gives them more options. You know, the 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 precious metals peers to me always thinks you know like there's nothing wrong with getting rid of cash because the cash we're trading is is fiat ultimately. Uh, but but you look at at what ha- has happened in in countries that have maybe not been as far along on that um, spectrum of of moving towards a, a cashless society. And India specifically comes to mind. Uh, demonetization of some of their uh, lower denominated. Um, sorry, higher, I think it was their higher denominated notes for a while, um, their bills. And, and, and ultimately it's a push to, to bring society into the banking system. And, and they'll throw out a lot of great reasons for why that's the case that seem like, like rational, um, you know, altruistic uh, reasons in the first place. But, but when you look under the surface, you, you realize that a lot of it's because of things like tax evasion. A lot of it's because, you know, in a country in a society like India, uh, uh, assets like precious metals play a huge role in, in savings uh, and, and in wealth preservation. And, and those are things that generally are not in the best interest of, of a government um, or, or of a banking system. And, and so there's always going to be that, that drive to, to, to get people you know, in, into the system. I mean, it sounds um, so conspiracy theory minded uh, getting as part of the system, but, but I mean, I think that's really sort of where we're headed. Yeah, I agree 100%. It, it sounds like you're suggesting to, you know, that we're going towards a cashless society and um, yeah, that's the trend. And th- there's some incentives why they would want that. And, you know, there might be a little bit of truth to that, you know, tax evasion and drug dealers and all this. Um but really, it's about two things from my perspective. One, uh, control and being able to see every transaction that we make. And then number two is um, the ability to usher in more negative interest rates. Absolutely. Um, like, yeah, because like right now, if you tried to um, have negative interest rates in the banking system, you know who's going to keep their money in a bank? <laughs> You're going to pull it out and put it in a safe or something like that. Um, but if, you know, if we go to a cashless society, it makes it much easier for them to implement those negative interest rates. And I think that unfortunately, that's probably where we're headed. Okay, so so let's say hypothetically, so we know that inflation um, is is oftentimes 
Uh, yes, it's a monetary phenomenon, but but a big part of it is is psychological in the sense that people see inflation, they get fearful of higher inflation, unless you use uh, methods like let's say really high interest rates to to um, stamp out that inflation. It tends to build on itself. Uh, over a period of, of months and years. And that's why you always see these numbers quoted about a, uh, you know, any specific country that's gone through a hyperinflationary period and their inflation moves from five to 50 to you know, 500 to 5,000, 5 million percent you know, in the matter of a couple of years. So, so with that mindset, let's say hypothetically over the next six months, let's say we get these CPI numbers coming out um, which already probably understate inflation to some extent, and let's say they're they're averaging anywhere from seven to nine percent, you know, annualized, not on a month over month, but but annualized, and so basically it looks like like we're we're headed for a you know high inflation period, but with the mindset of it could get a lot worse. If you could see in the future and you knew that was going to happen, and we're not saying it's going to, but if if you if you saw that, what would you do today? And I'm not just talking like what would you play around with in terms of your portfolio but but even just a general preparedness perspective what what's on your mind and, and what are you doing today to prepare for what happens at you know the next six months and then this next six months after that sure yeah and i'm happy to be pretty uh, candid and transparent that this isn't really a hypothetical question for me because i'm actually taking a lot of these steps um you know i'm not necessarily predicting that we're going to see 10 percent annualized inflation this year although it's possible i mean it's totally possible um, at some point, I am convinced it's coming. So here's some things I, I'm doing. And I think, you know, what's right for me isn't necessarily right for everyone else. But I think these are things we should all be thinking about. So, you know, personally, I like to keep some extra food on hand. Um, and not just like, I'm not talking about like freeze dried stuff and all that, although I do have some of those things. But what makes a lot more sense to me from a practical preparedness perspective is just, you know, stocking up on things that you use anyway that are non-perishable. They're only going to get more expensive and then you have them in some kind of emergency. So, you know, food items, um, I think about energy, we keep it on uh, a couple extra uh, gas jugs. We have a portable solar system, um, you know, pr practical preparedness steps. I think about where I would go in an emergency, you know, if I had to get out of Dodge, you know, these are, these are kind of things that, that are worth thinking about and putting some thought into. Yeah, you know, even in terms of, of living in a high inflation environment, um, these last you know few weeks walking through somewhere like Walmart, you know, I think to myself, there's a if I want to you know practically find a way to to cut costs in my budget, there's a couple aisles of Walmart that I would zero in on and say like these are the places where I need to focus my money. Things like grains, um, um, rice, and, and beans, and 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 you know, there's aisles there where where they really focus on things like baking goods, things that aren't already prepared, um, things that are are, you know, maybe have been been uh, um, have have gone up recently because of inflation, but things that haven't, um, you know, if you have 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 rice that's selling for five dollars and now it's it's cost five dollars and fifty cents. That's not a huge deal because you're getting a lot of rice for five dollars. Um, things of that nature, and those things are really easy, like you said, to stock up on um, um, canned goods or or you know, things that you normally eat that are relatively you know non-perishable are going to last a few years at least. Um, it doesn't have to be going on to a a website, you know, ordering survival food. I can say that that I've I've done it both ways. I've 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 bought stuff that we just will eat anyways, and and since then we've eaten most of that food, and and it's been replaced by other food. And I've gone the other way and and bought you know survival 
food type stuff and it's it hasn't been touched granted it, it's supposed to last like 20 years or something like that but it hasn't been touched and and either of those would probably be just fine in, in some sort of like a, a survival environment yeah two, two quick thoughts to piggyback on that uh number one you know if if you're going out and trying to stock up on things in the midst of the emergency you know that's called hoarding and you know i don't i don't necessarily think that's ethical to do that because you know there's people who really need that but you know doing it ahead of time is, is called prudence. Um, so, you know, I think that's a key distinction. So, you know, stocking up on some things now is, is really smart. And then uh, number two, you know, we're, we're both Christians and, you know, I, I want to be in a position if something like this happens, some kind of a, you know, disaster or emergency, I, I don't want to just be able to provide for my family. I want to be able to walk down to my neighbors or people around me. So, I, you know, I want a little bit of extra. Um, so I, I kind of think about that as well. Uh, you know, I want to be in a position to be a blessing to other people not necessarily just kind of like hoarding <laughs> in my own little corner, taking care of ourselves. So, you know, those are things I think about. So, yeah, absolutely. I think the fact of the matter is that um, even if we don't end up in like a total uh, crap, it's a fan type of environment where the, yeah. you know, the, the whole grid goes down or something like that, even if it's just a, um, you know, even if we're just halfway there, wherever that's at, uh, a, a key part of, of, I guess, survival or not just survival, but thriving is going to be community. And that sounds really vague or maybe kind of just feel good-ish, but, but it's true. You know, I think the, the neighborhood I live in and, and, and I can't imagine going through, you know, a tough period without some amount of, of collaboration, even though, you know, I can say right now, you know, most of my neighbors, I don't know super well, or, or many of them on a first name basis. I know that if, we were in that type of situation, it would be prudent to um, be able to, to uh, um, collaborate with them and work, work together with them. And, and I think like what you're saying is, is this idea of, of whether you call it charity or in other cases, goodwill, or even just having resources that the rest of the community can to some extent draw upon that that goes a long ways. And, and, and I'd agree. It's a big part of my faith. I mean, I think we can all talk and not you and I, but, but we can talk a big talk about how, you know, if we're in a survival situation, it's each man for themselves. Um, but that's until you're, you're in, you know, a really tough situation of, 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 a single mother and her four-year-old child comes to your door. And that's, that's a hypothetical. And maybe it's a little bit of an extreme example, but what do you do in that situation? You know, it's, it's, um, it, it seems a little heartless for me to say, like, I'm not going to prepare for others. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and this, this is such a good conversation. Um, uh, um, you know, a lot of people too, I think in the precious metals community kind of think of, uh, the precious metals are like a panacea cure-all, for uh, preparedness. I, I, I kind of used to think about that like that when I was brand new, but really that's just kind of part of a comprehensive approach from my perspective. Um, you know, having some physical silver and gold, having some food storage, maybe some uh, way to produce some energy, um, consumer staples, things like that. Yeah. And, and, and certainly other, you know, uh, uh, barter items or, or even, you know, people get into, to uh, firearms and self-defense and all of that. It's all, kind of a, a holistic approach to it. And, and, and I agree, you know, I was there for a while too, whether it's with precious metals or even, you know, like back in the day, I, I was more into like firearms and, 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 you know, that was kind of the, the be all end all. And then you realize that, you know, people say it about silver too. You can't eat silver. You, you can't eat lead and, and, and brass. I mean, that, that's only a small part of, of the picture. Yeah. Agreed. 100%. So, you know, going back to, to the markets themselves and, 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 you know, going off this topic of, 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 uh, 
maybe the implications of high inflation in the future. You know, one thing that I wanted to circle back to, maybe we talked about it at the very beginning or I mentioned it, was, you know, the uranium, uranium market, uranium miner market as well. And, and that's certainly something that I have been more interested in, um, even just since our last conversation a little over a month ago. Uh, and, and I've seen uh, and heard a lot of other people now talking about it as well. And, and, and you know, I was, I was saying before I we went on air that I was happy to get into the market at at, at least somewhat of a decent entry point um, relative to maybe uh, um, six months ago or, or a year ago, that, that those were maybe even better entry points. But, but where are we at today in that? You know, first of all, I mean, it was maybe a better entry point back then compared to where the prices are today on, on uranium mining stocks. But but I know your perspective is that we're still at a at a pretty good entry point overall. Yeah, I think so. Um, from a big picture perspective in the uranium sector, um, I th- I'd say we're like in maybe the third inning of a nine inning game. And the reason I say that is the spot price is still around 30 bucks a pound, and we're going to need $50 plus uranium in order to incentivize the new production that needs to come online for all these uh, nuclear reactors that are coming online around the world. You know, nuclear is a growth industry. So I think there's a lot of runway ahead. Uh, that said, you know, the stocks have gone up pretty, pretty far, pretty fast, and they're still a little bit technically stretched on the weekly and monthly charts. So some backing and filling or even a little bit of a pullback here would actually be healthy. But on the other on the other side of that argument is you know this is such a small sector and the fundamentals are just so wildly bullish that that it's possible that it it just keeps running. Um, that's what happened back in the 2007 bull market. So really, I think more about predicting the next short term move is having a valid strategy. And you know what I've been advocating for our members is you know partial positions make a lot of sense here while keeping some cash on hand uh, to scoop up bargains. You know when we do see some downside volatility, which is sure to come at some point. You know, you're sorry. You were, you were talking about how small this market is, and and you know before we were on air, I was talking about a discussion I was listening to on Macro Voices, uh, Larry McDonald, the guy who I, to my knowledge, I hadn't heard talk you know in the past at length about anything, and and he was talking about uranium, and it, so you were talking earlier about you know the size of the the silver space. You know, you look at a year's worth of production of silver is, you know, less than $30 billion right now. And, and the number he put on the uranium market was, it was between, I think it was, I want to say like 21, $22 billion, a tiny wow. number. And, 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 and he wasn't even taking into account uranium itself. He was talking, he included in that was also uranium miners. That's a tiny number. It is. It's one of. It's maybe the only sector that I can think of that has the potential to outperform silver over the intermediate term. You know, on the way to fifty dollar. Uh, what's interesting is like both uranium and silver both kind of have intermediate targets of about fifty dollars on the spot price. Uh, and if that's the case, if silver goes to fifty and uranium goes to fifty, I think the uranium miners could actually perform better than the junior silver miners um, over over that time period. Because uh, it's such a small market, there's only 65. La- at last check, there's only 65 companies total globally around the whole world, and they're all very small market cap. So when big money starts to come into the sector, I mean, there's just not many places for it to go. So you'll have you're going to have big institutions piling into these tiny small market cap uh, companies, and you know, historically, uranium bull markets result in just massive gains. I mean, uh, Rick Rule, I think that's where he made the majority of his early fortune was in that 2007 bull market. Uh, of uranium. So upside potential here is just phenomenal. So so last time we talked, we talked about 
the physical uranium market in that it is, you know, looking forward over the next couple of years, over the next 10 years, um, there there's inevitably going to be some sort of a deficit that there's already a deficit, but that it's going to grow and that demand right now is, is just going to far exceed supply come onto the market. And, and, you know, we, t- we talked then about how some, you know, mining companies even have, have taken it upon themselves to um, go into the physical market and, and buy physical. I think it, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Denison mines that did that and maybe some other ones as well? Yeah, there was a handful. Uh, Denison Mines, Encore Energy, UEC, recently Boss. Uh, just a couple of days ago, Peninsula Energy was another one. And this is all happening at a time when Sprott is now taking over the physical back fund. So um, just like Sprott has the PSLV and the PHYS and the Sprott Physical Platinum Palladium Trust, well, now they're going to be taking over uh, Sprott Uranium, Physical Uranium Trust. Um, that hasn't been launched yet, but that's in the works for the next month or two here before it's actually available to the public. So that's just going to be another source of demand for physical. Yeah. You kind of read my mind there that, that um, the Sprott physical trust was, was a a huge development in my opinion. Uh, Even if, you know, when it starts, because my understanding is they're going to be taking on some of the, the assets of a, an existing um, fund, but, but even if, you know, once it starts and, and is listed on the market, even if it starts as a, you know, I wouldn't expect it to be as popular as, as um, um, like PSLV um, or Fizz, you know, right off right. the bat. Um, but even if it garners just a, a tenth of that in terms of attention, in terms of, of actual investment dollars, um, that that's a huge impact on the physical uranium market. That's a huge amount of physical uranium taken off the market, um, uh, you know, relative to to total yearly supply. Yeah, we just did a, a live, we, every month we do a, a mastermind call for uh, the premium members. And we just did our monthly mastermind call yesterday. And uh, we had uh, one of my mentors in the space on and we, he, he said that this development with Sprott coming into the market is the biggest bullish fundamental that he's seen since he's been following the uranium space going back, you know, a long time. That, that's how significant this is. Um, it, and you know we're already in the supply deficit. Uh, global demand is roughly two hundred million pounds per year, and then mine output is closer to like one hundred and fifty million pounds. It was actually less than that um, in twenty twenty due to the COVID disruptions. So so there's a structural supply deficit, and that gap has been being filled by the um, above ground supply that the overhang from the two thousand eleven Fukushima disaster. But all the indications are that that over overhang is of supply is almost gone. So you know. We're really primed to see a, a really nice bull market here in uranium, and I think we're still in the early stages. Well, yeah, I mean, you even um, you think of, of of things like Wall Street silver, Wall Street bets, um, being able to target um, specific assets, whether it's uh, silver, fiscal silver, PSLV, or whether it's um, uh, you know, the so-called like meme stocks like GME and, and their options and, and the stocks themselves, but, but the influence that they can have on, on a small market and, and relatively speaking, I mean, silver is a very large market compared to uranium. And it makes me wonder, I mean, I, I, I certainly could foresee um, a situation playing out in the future where, where something like, like Sprott physical uranium trust, um, you know, it gets listed and, and at some point along the way, I mean, they, they have difficulty sourcing uranium because of they get, you know, because of, of so much interest and, and so much, um, um, I guess, attention 
uh, and investment dollars that they would have garnered uh, because it, it offer it would offer such an easy way for people to invest in fiscal uranium. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a lot of r- really big investors are calling uh, uranium th- the most asymmetric setup that they've seen in their whole career. So, um, yeah, it's the, the upside here is tremendous. Um, I've actually began taking delivery of uh, uranium eagles, monster boxes. Yeah. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding because you mentioned silver squeeze, but you know there is kind of like a little subset. Um, I, I don't know how much momentum it's gained yet, but you know the uranium squeeze kind of is like a little movement that is something to watch out for because th- that could attract even more investment capital into the space. Yeah, and 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 again, like you were saying before, that that there's not. So with silver, there's this common thing that's repeated that, you know, so much of silver that's ever been created has now been destroyed or is sitting in the ground or is in the products that we use every day. And there's only a small amount that we can actually invest in. And and, and that's mostly true. But again, the amount of physical silver that you could invest in in, in coin and bar form today is still a mountain of silver. And it's still not that much silver, but it's still a mountain of silver compared to, you know, the amount of, of physical uranium available. Yeah, exactly. I mean, silver is such a small market and uranium is even smaller. And, you know, when I first kind of, t- I've been in silver much longer than uranium. And, you know, for years I thought, you know, silver is about the smallest market you can find with the most uh, asymmetry, most upside potential with minimal downside risk. Then I found uranium and I'm not saying one's better than the other or has more upside, but, you know, uranium's right there. So I like to tell silver investors, hey, you should really take a look at uranium and see if it fits your risk reward profile. And same goes for uranium investors. You know, a lot of people have been in that sector for a while and maybe they're not too knowledgeable on silver. I think the two really complement each other and they have a lot in common. Absolutely. You know, so so we talked about miners um, going into the fiscal market and, and actually buying. We talked about Sprott Fiscal Uranium Trust. Um, you know, one of the things we brought up last time we talked was was utilities and, you know, the actual, the end user of this uranium, which is primarily uh, power plants, um, where are they at in terms of going out and, and purchasing uranium? So let me clarify what I mean by that is they, you know, they, they have sort of longstanding contracts to, to, to sort of guarantee a supply at a, at a given price. And, and then at some point they have to basically renew those contracts. Um, but, and, and so, you know, many of these are already going to be going out and already buying it on a regular basis. But what I mean by that is at what point do these utilities and, and these power plants actually go out and buy extra uranium essentially to front run any sort of um, expected shortage or, or, or even just expected, you know, sharp rise in the price of uranium. Yeah, that's that's literally like the million dollar question, and it, it, it's astonishing that, that 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 this hasn't begun already. The long term contracting cycle, um, a lot of these long term contracts, as you mentioned, are expiring, and these utilities are going to need to you know secure future production. Um, and w- what's interesting about uh, the utilities is that the the price is pretty elastic or inelastic. In other words, uranium. The actual cost of uranium is such a small cost of the whole overall expense of running one of these nuclear power plants that even if the price doubled, it really doesn't have that much of an impact on their net expenses. Um, but you know, it's it, it's really astonishing that they haven't begun this long-term contracting yet. And you know, I think it's probably coming sooner rather than later. And that's probably the next big catalyst for the sector is when that when that begins. So, so essentially, what you're saying is that in terms of of being able to source 
uh, uranium, it's not so much a matter of, you know, how much is that going to affect our bottom line? At some point, it could be more so a matter of, <laughs> can we can we source it in the first place? Um, this idea of front running, not just to get a lower price, but to put front run so that we don't, you know, miss out on it entirely or, or have to worry about any you know, potential shortage. Yeah, exactly. Like um, I, I heard someone say recently, you know, say you're the manager of a nuclear power plant and you're in charge of securing that future supply. You're not going to get fired and lose your job if you overpay uh, for the uranium. However, you're going to get fired if you, if, if your future needs are not met. So, you know, the pressure is on these guys. And I, I honestly don't know what's taking them so long, but you know, that's coming. It's, it's going to happen. They're going to have to start their long-term contracting cycle, which is going to put further upside pressure on the price of uranium. And of course the mining stocks will benefit from that. It's, it's, um, you know, going back to, to kind of what I was talking about early on is this idea of there's a whole lot of value stocks and there's a whole lot of value assets out there in today's marketplace. Um, and, and this isn't a secret, you know, what you're talking about in the uranium space, this isn't like proprietary research that only, you know, the top, um, natural resource, uh, um, um, you know, researchers or analysts, uh, know about this is, this is public knowledge. The same is true for the silver and, and gold space as well. Um, and yet it, uh, it's astounding to me that, that they haven't garnered more interest that they haven't garnered, you know, more, more dollars essentially. Yeah, same here. I mean, at some point, you, you're going to think, you know, let, let's say you're up, you know, 10, 20x on your Tesla stock or your favorite FANG stock. At what point do you say, hey, you know, I'm going to take some chips off the table here and cycle it into something that's uh, more undervalued. Um, so that, that's coming. So to kind of wrap this up, um, an important point to make uh, for, for, for the listeners today is that uh, the the physical silver, I should say not just the physical silver, the silver market, whether you're looking at physical silver, but but specifically things like silver mining stocks, which tend to have a you know a greater upside versus the physical silver and their uranium space as well. Um, to, to a new investor that is hearing this for the first time, especially about uranium, that can be a confusing place to start from. Tell me and tell them a little bit about your newsletter and how you can kind of cut through some of that. Because it's, like you said, it's not as easy as just going into the uranium market and buying uh, uranium eagles. And certainly SILJ, you know, silver, you know, silver junior miners or SIL, you know, those offer, you know, some value uh, for, for silver miners. Uh, but, but certainly the idea is hope, hopefully we can maybe beat something like the SIL, SILJ um, by, by investing in, in specific Silver miner stocks. So, so share share a little bit about that. Yeah, you bet. There there are some ETFs that uranium investors can look at, but um, you know, a basket of high quality mining stocks is very very likely to outperform. And you know, we've seen that our our portfolio at Silver Charters has really way outperformed the ETF. Um, I don't I don't say that to brag or anything, but it just has. But yeah, what we offer at Silver Charters, you know, there's a free letter. But then if you want that premium service, it's very cheap. It's right now it's only nine dollars a month or 89 bucks a year. And you get a fully transparent over the shoulder look at exactly the stocks that I own when I buy, when I sell, I send out real-time alerts with explanations on why I'm why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you know, the goal isn't there for you to say, hey, I'm just gonna copy Steve. It's, you know, I, I share exactly what I'm thinking and then hopefully that helps uh, you to make better decisions for yourself. But so that's the goal at Silver Chartist. And you know, by the way, our, our mission statement is is not like <laughs> 
you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, why are you in these sectors? And I'd say, well, I want, I want to make a bunch of money. And don't get me wrong, I still hope to do that. But really, the mission here is to help everyday people achieve the time freedom to pursue life's higher callings, things of eternal significance. So that, that's our why behind what we do. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for in these sectors to um, you know, help people um, get some financial freedom and hopefully have some time freedom to pursue the things that really matter in life. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking to, to me personally, I can say that, you know, like I said at the beginning, the, the, the analysis and the, 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 even if you just look at like the bare bones that in in your paid newsletter, the stocks you've picked, they performed very well and they've done very well. And, and, and yes, people can go out and do that research on their own to most new investors or, or those that aren't as good at picking or, or analyzing, um, individual stocks and and their their balance sheet and 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 earnings reports and whatnot. Like myself, um, we're not going to fare very well in that. Um, and and so really, you know, the whole point of it is is really simplifying. And like you said, not just making a whole boatload of money, but finding a way to to cr- give yourself some financial independence um, um, ap- apart from just you know working a you know, nine to five constantly and finding some other, you know, time, time is ultimately, you know, in my book, um, you know, the number one thing that I commoditize in my own life, far more than money or, or other things. Yeah. Time is the most valuable commodity indeed. Um, yeah. And, and you talk about stock selection, like we have Jeff Clark as a contributor on our team. A lot of people might know him from back in his Casey research days. Um, but yeah, he, he's, he's a great, uh, fundamental analysis, and then we kind of pair that with my specialty, which is technical analysis. So I like to say fundamentals tell me what to buy, and then the technicals can help with more precision entries and exit points. So really complementary uh, skill sets there with uh, myself and Jeff and the other people on team as well. So anyways, like I said earlier, um, there's a link down below in the description to that newsletter. Otherwise, you can go to Silver Chartist, uh, uh, sorry, silverchartistfortune.com to sign up for that as well. Um and as we said at the beginning, like there's a paid option, but you certainly can just sign, sign up for the free. And it's not like you're just getting like a couple sentences each week on, on the market space or like this is where metals went. And, and there's actually quite a bit of value in just the free option as well. Yeah, you bet, Matt. So anyways, um, I, I want to once again, thank you for coming on today, Steve. Uh, I appreciate your thoughts on this market a lot. I uh, appreciate uh, what you're doing for this space and, and the information you're sharing with people. Um, and, and, I, uh, and I hope you have a, a good you know, rest of your Memorial Day. You bet, Matt. Th- thank you so much for inviting me on. And, you know, I should have mentioned before, we, we have a website, but that link you mentioned, we created that just for your listeners as a thank you for inviting me on. And yeah, silverchartistfortune.com is where you can get the free letter. Awesome. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Steve. Have a great you one. Bet. You too, Matt. All right. Bye.